uh, hope in conflict. So what I want to do this morning in the notes here is, is kind of give the big picture uh, what is conflict, what is kind of defining terms, uh, what is peace, what is conflict, what is reconciliation, uh, and then just talk about why is it that we uh, have conflict, uh, why does conflict exist in the world, and uh, as we kind of look at the creation to uh, consummation to new creation, uh, how, wh- how does conflict play into that? Uh, and then end with talking about why should we have hope? What hope is there uh, in the midst of conflict? All right, so let's let's dive in here. Actually, let me start with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each one of these folks who are. Uh, desiring to learn and grow in this significant area. Uh, Lord, you know how common conflict is in our lives and how much it brings distress to our souls and uh, complicates our relationships. And uh, we would certainly desire to never have conflict. Um, And there will come a day when that will happen, when we will be completely harmonious uh, as uh, those of us who have trusted in Christ will experience glorification and uh, be united to you and to one another in perfect harmony forever. Uh, but until then, Lord, we, we will experience conflict in this life no matter how much we adhere to uh, the Scripture, no matter how much we reflect Christ-likeness. Christ himself experienced conflict. And so I pray that as we begin this journey over the next uh, 12, 13 weeks, that Uh, you would renew our minds, that you would help us to learn and grow, that uh, the things that we talk about would not just be theoretical, but that you would help us to live them out uh, in our lives so that when we go home on Sunday afternoons, uh, as we go to work or school uh, or engage with our family, whatever we do, that we would have these principles in mind and live in accordance with them. And we ask for your grace, knowing that uh, we can't do that on our own strength. Our flesh uh, is powerful, and uh, our pride is um, a barrier. And so we need your help to uh, apply these principles for uh, for your glory's sake. And so we ask that you would bless our endeavors in, in these things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so definitions. The first definition that I want us to talk through is peace. What is peace? Uh, We could think about peace just as uh, the absence of conflict, and there's a sense in which obviously that's true, but let's think about the different components of peace. Uh, One definition, this is a definition by, um, uh, I think I made it up. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I think I came up with it you know, putting various things together because there's no quote there. So uh, peace, you could define it as a state of well-being, harmony, and love driven by unity in desires, goals, and purposes. Okay, a state of well-being, harmony, and love driven by unity in desires, goals, and purposes. So you may be familiar with the Hebrew term shalom. That's the word for peace in Hebrew. And how it's a common greeting and what you say, you know, when you depart from one another, if you're a Jew or if you're in the land of Israel, uh, you say shalom, you know, in other cultures as well. And uh, it's not just, uh, you know, it's a way of saying peace, but it's not just, uh, hey, have a good day. It's have a harmonious 
uh, life. May, may all of your life be harmonious. And, and so the, the idea of peace in Scripture is much broader than just uh, a lack of conflict between relationships. Uh, so well-being certainly relates to just our, our physical life, our health. Uh, harmony relates to our relationships with one another. Uh, and then, of course, love uh, relationships as well. And the idea there is, is not that we all think the same way, uh, precisely, that we all have the same opinions about everything, um, that we all are exactly the same in every way, but rather with all of the distinctives, with all of the differences that exist among us, that we are able to, to love each other in a way that we can uh, you know, work together, serve together, uh, pursue Christ together, you know, live in the home together uh, in, in a way that promotes uh, joy. Uh, you know, we've defined joy on Sunday mornings often as uh, that uh, emotion of delight and strength produced by the Holy Spirit when we view the circumstances of life through the lens of God's Word. And so when, when we are living together in harmony, that produces joy uh, and peace. And the end of the definition there says it's driven by unity in desires, goals, and purposes. So when we get to the section on where does conflict come from, we're going to see that conflict comes from a conflict of desires. I want something, you want something, and we're having uh, opposition uh, toward each other in some way. Uh, it's not always like, I want this toy, you want the same toy, and you know we're fighting over that. It doesn't have to be that kind of a desire. It could be uh, various, it could be a goal that we have. Uh, it could be um, a conflict in ideology, uh, you know, political ideology. Uh, it could be a de- desire for justice to reign on the earth. And so when we see injustice, uh, there's conflict in our hearts. That's not a personal conflict, but there's conflict in our hearts over the injustice that we see. Uh, but there's a, there's a difference there. And so peace, on the flip side, is driven by unity. Unity in desires, goals, and purposes. Again, not necessarily that we all want the same thing, uh, precisely the same thing, but that we all have the right uh, Christ-honoring desires in our life. We'll talk a lot more about that as, as we go through the class. So some of the ways that Scripture talks about Peace is by contrasting it with things that are the opposite of peace. And so uh, we have here a list of of things. And the first one is that Paul contrasts, the Apostle Paul contrasts peace with disorder and confusion. Disorder and confusion. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, he says, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Now, in that context, he's talking about the spiritual gifts, talking about the, the work of the church and people coming together using their gifts. The problem with the Corinthian church was uh, everybody was kind of doing their own thing. They were all wanting to speak in tongues or prophesy. And he says, no, no, no. If, if you're going to come together for worship, when you come together for worship, you need to do things properly and in order. Because otherwise, it's a confusing mess. You know, a cacophony of noise and nobody knows what's going on. Nobody can understand. It's confusing. He says, God is a God of peace, and so there's harmony in how we uh, worship the Lord together. The uh, uh, psalmist, King David, contrasts peace with anxiety. 
in Psalm 4, verse 8, he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Now, it doesn't use the word anxiety there, Mark, but uh, he's writing in a context where he's under attack. Right? He's being pursued by his enemies, King Saul at that time. And when you have your life threatened, what's one of the first things to go? Sleep. <laughs> right? Because in your mind, you're agitated in your soul. You're thinking about what if, what if they come upon us? You know, uh, what, what if they surprise us, ambush us? Uh, Lord, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? You know, there's just no stability in or certainty in what's going to happen. Because, again, in his case, he's being pursued by King Saul. So the king has a nation at his disposal uh, to pursue David. And there were times where David would go to a city, and that city would betray him to Saul, say, hey, Saul, King David, or he wasn't a king at the time. David is, you know, coming to our city. So, so David was in a constant state of internal Anxiety, angst, uncertainty. And yet he said, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone or Lord make me to dwell in safety. So he could trust in the Lord and experience peace in his heart. He could sleep like a baby, we might say, because uh, he trusted in the Lord. So he experienced peace in place of anxiety. Uh, Jesus in John fourteen twenty seven contrasts peace with fear, with fear. Uh, He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So that's the context where Jesus is in the upper room. He's preparing the disciples for his departure. And of course, as they're hearing Jesus talk about leaving them, they can't follow him. What are they? They are afraid. They're fearful. What's going to happen? What are we going to do? We've been following Jesus all over Israel for three years. We've had all of our needs met. We've seen Jesus you know, do all of this teaching, all of these miracles. And now he's going away. What, what is going to happen? What are we going to do? They were fearful. And so Jesus is uh, comforting them, saying that I'm leaving you my peace. You don't have to be afraid. In a more uh, common context with regard to peace, the Apostle Paul contrasts peace with disunity. Disunity. 2 Corinthians 13.11, he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So there he's talking to a group of people who are uh, disunified. There's disagreements within the Corinthian church. There was influence by... uh, Uh, False apostles, uh, men who were trying to uh, turn the Corinthians away from the influence of the Apostle Paul. And so there was conflict within the church. Who are we going to follow? Who are we going to listen to? And they were disagreeing with each other. And so he says, be like-minded. Be at peace. Simon contrasts uh, peace with incompleteness. This is an interesting one. In Luke 2.29, Simon is... The old man who was in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be circumcised. And he says, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. So that's the sense of my life is now complete. God's word, God's promises to me have been fulfilled. 
I can now be at peace. There's nothing left to do. So it's like, uh, you know, being on your deathbed, having no regrets. You've lived a full life. Uh, you've been forgiven of your sin. You're reconciled with your loved ones and you're ready to uh, enter the presence of God with that sense of completeness. There's a peace that is there. Again, Jesus contrasts peace with being unwell. So this is physical uh, peace. Mark 5.34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So when we feel sick, there's that you know, internal angst. Of, oh, I don't like being sick. We're in conflict with uh, you know, our, our physical body in that sense. We want to be healthy. We want to be able to do everything that we normally do. But we feel sick. And so there's that conflict. In, uh, so being at peace also relates to uh, our state of health. So all of those things kind of come together. And we can say a, that peace is a state of well-being, harmony, and love. Driven by unity and desires, goals, and purposes. So when we're at peace, we're uh, not confused, we're not anxious, we're not fearful, we're unified, we're complete, we're healthy. That would be like the perfect state of complete peace. Plenty of seats up here, Helen. Welcome. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. So conflict, what is conflict? Well, uh, Ken Sandy defines conflict as a difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. A difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. And this, he's uh, speaking of conflict very specifically in terms of relational conflict. That, uh, again, you and I have opinions, we have purposes, and uh, we're at cross purposes, and so one of us or both of us are being frustrated because we can't accomplish our goals, we can't have our desires met. That's, that's conflict in terms of personal uh, relationship. But contra- going with the definition of peace, you could define uh, conflict in, in kind of the opposite of how we define peace, of uh, a state of impaired thinking and relationships driven by competing desires, goals, and purposes. A state of impaired thinking and relationships driven by competing desires and purposes. So again, sometimes the lack of peace or the existence of conflict is just in your own mind. It's, it's, a, it's a, a difficulty of, of thinking uh, clearly. There's angst, there's anxiety, uh, there's confusion, and then many times that manifests itself in your relationship with others. Um, we see uh, this dynamic in uh, Philippians 4, which we'll study someday. Uh, Yodia and Syntyche had a broken relationship due to some kind of disunity of mind. And so the solution that Paul gave to them was to live in harmony, as it's translated in the NAS, and that literally means to, to have one mind, to be of the same mind, which is what he had commanded the whole church in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 4, 1 through 3, he says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, to be of the same mind with one another. Again, we don't know what their conflict was. We don't know what precisely the issue was. But there is a difference of opinion, there is a difference of purpose that that brought them in conflict with each other. And so Paul says, hey, learn to think the same way. Your your relationship is hindered. 
Paul and Barnabas, another famous conflict in Scripture, uh, they had an impaired relationship because uh, they had different perspectives on uh, Mark's trustworthiness, whether or not he should be taken uh, on their next missionary journey. And that uh, difference of opinion or perspective caused them to separate from each other and go off in different directions, right? So they had their original missionary journey where uh, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark uh, went together, uh, probably with others as well. And at some point along the way, John Mark says, I'm out. <laughs> this isn't fun. I'm not enjoying this. I want to go do something else. I'm out. And uh, so he showed himself to be unfaithful and genuinely so it appears. Uh, but some years later, uh, there's an opportunity for him to go out with them again. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, says, yeah, we should take him. We should give him a second chance. Uh, and Paul's like, no way. He is an unfaithful guy. I do not want him to go with us. And scripture says in Acts 15, uh, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In fact, in the broader text there, it says they had a sharp disagreement, a sharp disagreement. So I don't know what a sharp disagreement exactly looked like for the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, but if anyone said to me, man, we had a sharp disagreement, I would be thinking there's yelling going on. (laughs) There's maybe accusations being thrown around. If there's any scripture that I think likely shows sin in Paul's life, I think it's this one. Uh, again, we don't know. I'm not impugning anything to, 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 uh, to Paul, but it seems as though uh, they just couldn't come together. Paul's just like, I don't trust him. I don't think he should come with us. He's not going to be faithful. And so that different perspective led to a separation. Now, in the providence of God, that led to one missionary team becoming two missionary teams. And so Barnabas and uh, Mark, John Mark, and then Paul and Silas went off. And in a sense, the work was doubled, but that's not usually how you would want the gospel to go forward as a result of conflict, right? So that's, that's another example of impaired relationship. Now, praise the Lord that uh, at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, uh, Paul tells Timothy, bring or send John Mark to me because he is useful to me for ministry. So something happened in those intervening years, and it was, it was probably, I don't know, 20 years uh, between those two events that uh, Mark showed himself faithful, Paul wanted to trust him, and in fact even wanted uh, to be by his side. Uh, another conflict in scripture uh, is in Galatians. Paul confronted Peter about his hypocrisy, and they had different desires that they were living out of. P- Peter Uh, had been in Galatia, Uh, no, not in Galatia, Um, Antioch. Uh, Peter was in Antioch, and he was hanging out with the Gentiles, because that's what you do as a Christian, you hang out with your brothers in Christ, or sisters in Christ, And, uh, and then all of a sudden these guys come from Jerusalem, and Peter, out of the fear of man, uh, uh, removes himself from the Gentiles because he doesn't want to offend uh, the Jews uh, who were coming from Jerusalem. And so Paul says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, that's James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw himself uh, and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. 
And what Paul was confronting Peter about was saying, listen, if, if you remove yourself from uh, engaging, interacting, fellowshipping with the Gentiles, what are you communicating to the Gentiles about the gospel? So there, this was a gospel issue. We are, uh, Peter was misrepresenting uh, the reality that the gospel accomplishes of unity between Jews and Gentiles. He was, out of again, the, out of fear of man, he was saying that, uh, no, no, the gospel actually doesn't unify us. It still keeps us separate, which is, excuse me, is not true. So these are just three examples, Yodi and Satiki, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Peter, of conflict that uh, reflects that, that impaired thinking and relationships by competing desires, goals, and purposes. So whatever conflict you might find yourself in, you know, however small, however large, you can be thinking about, okay, what are the competing desires at work here? What do I want? What do they want? Uh, what are our goals? Uh, what are our purposes? What are we trying to accomplish that's at, at uh, odds with one another? And that, that defines the conflict. Uh, so often what we do is we define the conflict in terms of character. Well, you're just a bad person, and that's why we have a conflict. right? You're, you're a liar, you're a whatever. Uh, and the reality is, whatever is true about our character, the conflict is about an issue. It's about a competing desire, competing goal, competing purpose. Again, we'll talk a lot more about that in the weeks ahead. But that's what a conflict is. So, having talked about the definition of peace, the definition of conflict, let's talk about the process of reconciliation, at least in terms of what is it that we're trying to accomplish. So, Alfred Poirier, I don't know exactly how to pronounce that, it sounds French. Uh, he defines reconciliation this way, a work of the triune God, in union with us, the sons of God, who through that union labor to bring about that great day of peace by rectifying wrongs and setting relationships right, all under the lordship of God. So obviously this is a very Christian definition because it recognizes that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and us who are united together, we are working together to pursue the, the righting of wrongs and restoring of relationships uh, for, uh, for, for the glory of God, but under the lordship of God. We're aiming to ed, uh, achieve or, or uh, reflect that great day of peace that will one day come. So it's not just us who are pursuing peace. God is at work to produce peace in us and through us. And this is critical because uh, so often when we are in conflict with another person, we are trying to find a way to make the other person to change. How can I change their opinion? How can I change their actions? What can I do to show them how wrong they are? When uh, the reality is only God can change their heart. Right? Only the Lord can work to bring about a change. And frankly, only God can change my heart. So I just need to focus on how can I change uh, under the power of Christ by his grace? How can I be conformed to the image of Christ? How can I humble myself? How can I take the log out of my eye? How can I cooperate with God's 
efforts to sanctify me uh, and then see how he might work in the other person's life as I am being conformed to Christ. So there's, there's a, a need to see that God is at the center of our pursuit of reconciliation. Uh, first of all, God has reconciled uh, himself and individuals. So the reason we can pursue reconciliation is because God has reconciled us to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave him, uh, excuse me, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So again, the reason we can pursue and the reason we should pursue reconciliation with one another is because God has reconciled us to himself. So we are a reconciled people and we ought to pursue reconciliation with others. Also, God has reconciled himself and his people corporately, uniting Jews and Gentiles into the people of God. Ephesians 2, 11 to 15. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So this isn't something that we tend to think about much in our modern context. Most of us aren't Jews uh, by heritage or DNA or whatever. Most of us are Gentiles, and, and you know we, the, the Church of Jesus Christ has been predominantly Gentile since that's like the vast majority of the world. Uh, but it's a pretty big deal that God has united Jew and Gentile, right? Because for the first thousands of years, God had a people. A people whom he created through Abraham. We've been reading that through Genesis. Uh, the, the nation of Israel. And those were his people for centuries. God did not uh, deal primarily with any other nation in the world. He had a people, the people of Israel. Uh, that's not to say he didn't care about Gentiles. You know, there's certainly a number of accounts. In fact, even this morning in the service, we're going to read Genesis 20 where Abraham lied to Abimelech. Abimelech took Sarah to be his wife, and God warned Abimelech about doing that. He's like, you can't do that. She's Abraham's wife. We'll read, read that chapter this morning. And, and you see there, it certainly raises questions of, okay, well, what was Abimelech's relationship to God prior to this? How, how did Abimelech know that this is God? <laughs> right? Not just some weird, crazy dream. I have no idea. <laughs> But there seems to have been some awareness on Abimelech's part that uh, he understood, hey, this is God, and I need to listen to him and do what he says. So it's not that God was completely ignoring Gentiles, but he had his people whom he focused on. And so when the gospel united Jew and Gentile, that's that's just a massive reality uh, of, uh, of the unity of of the people of God between Jew and Gentile. And so again, because he's done that, we can see that God is not partial to any particular people. The Jews hated the Gentiles because they thought they're not the people of God. You know, they're filthy, they're dirty, they don't know God, they don't know the uh, they don't have the standards that God has revealed. We're we're the ones that that have God and the law and the prophets and all of that. Uh, the Gentiles hated the Jews. Uh, for you know all, all the same reasons that that people still hate Jews and are anti-Semitic, um, but God has brought them together, and so that enables us to know that uh, the people of God are made up of every tribe, nation, tongue, people, and so we should not uh, allow or tolerate 
disunity on the basis of ethnic differences, you know, skin color differences, all of that is uh, inadequate when it comes to um, uh, unity, uh, our, per- our pursuit of unity. So God has united us to himself personally. He's united the uh, Gentiles and Jews uh, together as one people of God corporately. And then third, in light of the reconciliation God has accomplished, we must work to preserve reconciliation uh, among men. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, this passage is very specifically and narrowly focused on unity among believers. Unity among believers. We'll mention it uh, toward the end of today. The fact that, yes, we should, as believers, pursue unity with unbelievers. There's, we have to nuance that. But Ephesians 4, when we think about preserving unity, what unity has God accomplished, it's among believers. And so because of what God has done, the unity he has created, uh, we must preserve that unity to the best of our ability. So that's, th- th- those are some aspects of the process of reconciliation. It starts with God. He is the reconciler. He reconciled us to himself, reconciled us as people, groups to one another, and therefore we should preserve uh, the unity that God has accomplished. All right, that, let's look at the big picture of the history of the world through the lens of war and peace. <laughs> Not the book, War and Peace, uh, but through the concept of war and peace. And I think this is helpful just, again, to see how you, you, you can look at the history of the world just with this perspective of the concept of, of war and peace. Genesis 131 tells us that God looked upon everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. So the world, as God created it, was a world of peace, was a world of harmony, was a world of unity. Uh, th- there was peace between animals. Uh, there's an indication that uh, the animals themselves you know, didn't fear each other. Uh, scripture, if, uh, as our understanding of uh, creation, the animals were all um, herbivores and and uh, whatever else isn't a carnivore, uh, herbivores and variables and <laughs> leafivores and you know whatever. You can tell I have my degrees in science and uh, anyway. Um, so there was no fear among the animals. You know, God paraded them in front of Adam for him to name them, and they didn't run away from each other. They weren't scared of each other. There was peace among animals. There was peace between mankind and creation. So God put Adam and Eve in the garden to tend it, and it wasn't working against them. Uh, it was uh, kind of cooperating with them, if we can put it that way. Uh, there was no thistles, no thorns. There was no weeds. Um, they were uh, trimming the growth of the garden, but they weren't pulling weeds because there weren't weeds. Uh, there was, so there was harmony there. There was peace between Adam and the animals. Again, he wasn't afraid of the lion as it crossed you know, in front of him for him to name it or whatever other animals there were. Uh, there was peace between Adam and Eve. God had created this uh, marriage and they had harmony, you know, the only couple in the history of the world that has, have ever experienced for a season a perfect harmony. No conflicts whatsoever. And there was peace between mankind and God. 
It's an indication in chapter 3, verse 8, that it was normal for them to interact with the Lord, that God would walk in the garden, that they would relate with him, they would engage with him in conversation, so that when he came, uh, that in itself wasn't a shock to them. So there was complete peace among every part, every aspect of creation, between uh, creation and itself, between uh, creation and the creator. There was complete peace. However, as soon as sin entered the world, creation was defined by conflict. It was started as being defined by peace. Now, with the entrance of sin, it's defined by conflict. So immediately there's conflict between animals. Uh, You have um, the serpent who is identified as the most crafty of the beasts. Uh, And then uh, in chapter 6, it talks about not only was man wicked, on the earth, as which is what led God to you know, bring about the flood, but even the animals themselves were wicked. Uh, there was conflict among animals. There's conflict between mankind and creation. You know, one of the curses that God gave to Adam is that now creation will work against you as you're trying to to work and and to uh, manage creation. It's it's going to work against you, and it's going to be hard, laborious work. Uh, Because now there's conflict between you and creation. There's conflict between mankind and animals. Then all of a sudden there's animosity between mankind and animals. There's fear. And that certainly is elevated after the flood when God gives mankind permission to eat the animals, which instills a a degree of fear in animals. Uh, But even before then, uh, that was the case. There was fear as well. Uh, There was conflict between Adam and Eve and among Mankind. Now, we don't have any examples. You know, we don't hear an argument in Genesis between Adam and Eve. But uh, they were human. You and I are human. Most of us here are married. And uh, I, I just, I can't imagine a, a, wor- a sin-cursed world in which Adam and Eve lived where they did not have the conversation. Why did you listen to the serpent? <laughs> well, you were right there. Why didn't you tell me anything? You know. That conversation had to happen. I just know it did. But uh, no doubt there would have been some degree of conflict uh, between them, especially since Adam lived you know, to 900 years old. Eve probably did as well. So there had to be conflict among them. And of course, we know uh, that's normal among mankind. And then, of course, there's conflict between mankind and God. So God you know, kicked them out of the garden. He put that flaming sword so that they would prevent it from ent- uh, be prevented from entering the garden. Uh, and uh, it's all of a sudden mankind was separated from God. You know, the first uh, clear example of conflict is with Cain and God, where God did not accept Cain's offering. And instead of responding in uh, repentance and submission, Cain rebelled against the Lord, murdered Abel. And then it just goes on from there. So, as soon as sin entered the world, conflict began to define every aspect of creation. And that's the world in which we live. It's a world defined by conflict. But that will not always be the case. There will come a day when the world will once again be defined by peace. And, the, and that will be at the millennium and the eternal state. So the millennium is when Christ comes after the tribulation to establish his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And he will reign over the whole world, uh, which will be a kingdom of peace and harmony. 
Uh, there will be peace between animals. Isaiah tells us that the lion will lie down with the lamb. And so there, there will be peace between animals. There will be peace between mankind and creation. You know, scripture says that the child will play at the adder's uh, hole. And uh, so there won't be that fear of a snake biting a child. Uh, there will be peace between mankind. Um, oh, I, I, I flipped it. Uh, mankind and creation as well. Uh, that creation won't work against mankind anymore. Uh, there will be peace between mankind uh, themselves, uh, man to man, woman to woman. We will be in harmony with each other. And there will be peace between mankind and God. So especially in the eternal state, you know that at the end of the millennium, uh, Satan will be released and he will deceive the nations. And there will be one final rebellion uh, after which uh, they will be thrown into the lake of fire and this world will be destroyed God will create the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells and we will have perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect unity uh, forever and ever and ever. So the world was created as a world of peace, harmony and love. And one day it will be that again. But for now, we are in a world defined by conflict. And so the question can come. Well, does that mean that I'm just bound to experience conflict every day of my life you know, for my whole existence? And the answer is no. Uh, there can be peace in this world. We can experience harmony and love. It says in the notes there, even though our sin-cursed world is defined by conflict, the gospel is the good news that not only has God made peace possible in the future, but he is making peace in the world today and calling those reconciled to himself to be peacemakers. So again, God has reconciled us to himself through the cross, and he calls us to be peacemakers. Um, in this world, While this world will be defined by conflict until Jesus sits on his throne, there is hope that we can experience peace because God, our creator, savior, and redeemer, is a peacemaking God. Now just think about this. Uh, I've you know strung together passages here in the notes that you, know, you don't normally read in succession, but it's amazing to me how much Scripture emphasizes that God is a peacemaking God. So if you don't have the notes, just listen. Uh, Isaiah nine six: For a child will be born to us, a child will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Right, we obviously read that often at Christmas time. That's a uh, prophecy of the Messiah, which refers both to his first um, coming in terms of the child will be born to us, but really the rest of it is a prophecy of his second coming, of who Jesus will be on this earth. And one of the things he will be is the Prince of Peace. At the end of his epistle to the Romans, Paul says, Now the God of peace be with you all. He's the God of peace. Uh, that is his nature. Uh, Philippians 4.9, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So as we're living our lives in a way that reflects the character of Christ and the character of God and the will of God, uh, this God of peace will be with us. 
Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and make and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved uh, complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For uh, 2 Corinthians 13.11, um, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. One more, Hebrews 13.20-21, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through, our, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, time and time again, the God of peace, the God of peace, the God of peace. I'm sure we'll say it again at some point. I was just looking to see if it's in the, in the notes for today. Uh, but the reason, I think I've said this from the pulpit recently, the reason that Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, is because when we fulfill the role of being a peacemaker, of one who is pr- promoting peace and pursuing peace, we're acting like our Father, who is the God of peace. That is the kind of God we serve. That is the God in whose image we've been made. And that is the God into whose image we are being conformed as believers. So we should be known as a people of peace. Again, not to say that we can't, that, that we'll never have conflict, but how we deal with conflict should reflect the reality that we worship and serve and are made in the image of a God of peace. All right, we have three different ways in which we can experience peace in our lives today. In the midst of all the conflict that we, that we have, we can still have these three different kinds of peace. The first kind of peace that can be yours today is saving peace with God. Uh, fundamentally, unbelievers are at war with God, whether they realize it or not. They hate God, they're hostile to God, uh, they, they don't know God, they're far from God. Salvation brings peace with God. This is a, a vertical peace, again, between us and God, which only God can produce. We, we can't do anything to pursue it because, again, of our hostile, uh, dead, hardened hearts. But we can pursue it by faith and repentance. So as we receive the gospel, uh, when we believe in Christ and we repent of our sins, we change our mind about who God is. Instead of saying, no, I hate God. He's an awful God. Uh, we say, no, no, he's a beautiful God. He's a lovely God. He's a, a glorious God. And we experience that peace uh, that comes as a result of salvation. And not only do we experience that peace ourselves, but we can call others to be at peace with God. That is evangelism, calling others to be at peace with God. Romans 5, uh, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our, our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So again, salvation means we now have peace with God. Or think about Colossians 1, 19-22. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him that is in Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy, uh, before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. One more, 2 Corinthians 5. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through, the Christ, uh, through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So again, God makes peace with us. We experience the, uh, the saving peace with God. We are reconciled to him. And then he calls us to call others to be at peace with God. A second type of peace that we can experience in this life is inner peace. Inner peace enjoyed with the God of peace. Internal turmoil, internal angst, uncertainty, confusion. You know, many people experience uh, those emotions, those feelings, because they're not certain of their salvation. God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to experience peace in our hearts so that there isn't angst. Uh, When God reconciles us to himself, the most significant conflict in our life is resolved. Again, there's a massive spectrum of the kinds of conflicts we can experience in our lives and our relationships with others. But the most significant one is our relationship to God, our conflict with God as an unbeliever. So once he reconciles us to himself, the, the biggest conflict has been taken care of. And if that can be taken care of, then we can know that it doesn't matter what we experience with one another. There is the possibility uh, of uh, peace in this life. So we can have internal peace, but it doesn't just happen by accident, right? It's not like we get saved and then instantly you know, we have internal peace and never have any struggles in our lives uh, or never have that in- internal angst. So we are called to pursue it. We we have to pursue that internal peace. And so Paul says in Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there we pursue peace by taking our concerns, our anxieties, and putting them before the Lord, knowing that He is the one who has the power to uh, control and, and take care of the burdens of our heart. But then He goes on to say, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and sin, uh, seen in me, practice these things in the God of peace will be with you. So what he's saying there is we have the ability to pursue internal peace just by what we think about. Our perspective, our beliefs, our convictions will impact how we feel. Do we feel anxious? Do we feel confused? Uh, do we feel um, just burdened? Well, we can alter how we feel based on what we think about and we can experience peace. Uh, Isaiah 26, verse 3, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So learning to trust the Lord 
in our heart, in our mind, will produce in us a perfect peace. You know, we're not going to have all the answers. We're not going to know what God is up to. We're not going to always be able to see the clear path of how to get out of a particular situation or conflict. But as we're trusting in the Lord, we're trusting in His goodness, in His kindness, in His mercy, in His grace, in His power, we can be at peace internally. Uh, John 14, 27, I mentioned this earlier, uh, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor be fearful. He says, do not let. Do not let your heart be troubled. Your heart's going to be troubled. Don't let it be troubled. (laughs) You You can not let your heart be troubled. How do you do that? Again, by... Uh, taking your burdens to the Lord, renewing your mind, dwelling on the truth. We must pursue the things that that produce peace internally. One more, John sixteen thirty three. Take these things I have spoken to you. Excuse me, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. He says, take courage. I have overcome the world. So there is a, a command there. Take courage. Strengthen yourself. Strengthen yourself in the knowledge of the fact that I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And you will have peace in your soul. So we can we have peace with God by virtue of our salvation. We can have internal peace by virtue of who God is and how he uh, enables us to pursue peace, uh, internal peace. And third, we can experience relational peace with others. That when we experience conflict, we can pursue relational peace. We are called to pursue peace, first of all, with unbelievers. And I would say this is in terms of our personal relationships. Not like, all right, Hope Bible Church needs to pursue peace with the uh, 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 Turkish-American Islamic group across the street. Hey, let's all come together and have peace. Now, that's, that's not the kind, I mean, we're not in conflict, but, you know, that's, that's not the kind of peace, you know, acting as though we're all worshiping the same God. This is with regard to maybe your, your family members who are unbelievers, uh, co-workers, fellow students, uh, anyone that you might be in conflict with who's an unbeliever. Instead of saying, well, you're not a believer, therefore Christ hasn't purchased our peace Therefore, I can't be at peace with you. No, I don't think that's true. I think we can experience peace, and I think Scripture says that we should pursue peace with unbelievers. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. All men. Not just believers, but all men. And women. (laughs) If possible, so far as it depends on you. It doesn't always depend on you. It's not always possible. But as much as you have the ability... Pursue peace with all others. Or uh, Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. (coughs) Or Titus 3, 2. Malign no one. Be peaceable, showing every consideration for all men. Or very explicitly speaking of unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Yet if the unbelieving spouse leaves, they leave the marriage, let them leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Apparently, there was situations there in Corinth where a, a per, one of the spouses had become a, a believer, and the unbelieving spouse is like, "I want nothing to do with you. 
I don't like, you know, I don't believe in your God. I don't like how you're different. You know, you're not coming to the temple with me anymore. Uh, you don't want to eat the meat sacrificed to idols anymore. You know, whatever complaints they would have, they're like, I, I don't want to live with you anymore. I'm, I'm leaving. The believer, because now they have the spirit of God in them, you know, maybe they've learned the word of God, so they know marriage is important, created by God, meant to be you know, for life. Uh, the believer may have said, no, 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 you can't leave. <laughs> we have to stay together. And that happens today. You know, sometimes uh, one spouse is like, I, I won't let you leave. I won't let you walk away. And Paul says here, if the unbelieving spouse wants, if they don't want to be part of marriage, let them leave. You're called to peace. Don't force them to stay with you. Um, so we're called to peace with unbelievers. We're called to pursue peace, especially with believers. Romans 14, 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So we should be living life in such a way that we're promoting and pursuing peace with each other. Or Ephesians 4, I read this earlier. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So there is a pre-existing essential unity among believers. Uh, that, that's there. When Jesus prayed in John 17, uh, Lord, you know, may they be one as we are one, that prayer has already been answered through the death and resurrection of Christ, through the work of salvation, through the adoption of the people of God into the family of God. We are united to each other in Christ. So our responsibility then is to preserve that peace that exists and not let the, the cracks, the, uh, the divisions that can be created um, uh, be sustained. You know, normally uh, when you come to a new church, uh, you are not instantly at conflict with people in the church. If, if you were, you wouldn't stay there very long, <laughs> right? Normally you come into a new church and everything's great. Man, the people are so friendly and we enjoy the teaching, and blah, blah, blah. But then at some point, something happens. Somebody says something or does something or you observe something. And you're like, ah, I feel offended. I'm not sure if I like that. You know, it's like preserve the unity. Preserve the unity. So we're to pursue, we're to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. First Thessalonians 5.13, live in peace with one another. That's what we're called to do. So in conclusion, peace is not just a possibility in this life. We're actually called to pursue it it's a commandment uh, and this is a big deal because if we're commanded to pursue peace and preserve peace then that means when we don't have peace and we're not doing anything about it we're living in sin if there is a broken relationship and we're just like well forget them we're just not going to be friends again. You know, maybe ghosting in our modern context. But that's sinful. It doesn't mean we have to be best friends with everybody. But it means we should be harmonious. We should be able to see one another. You know, say, hello. How are you doing? Uh, whatever level of relationship you know, is appropriate. But we should 
pursue to the best of our ability, as far as it depends on us, uh, pursue peace. God commands us to have peace among others, and he, he does that. He gives us that command, having already granted us peace uh, with him and uh, in ourselves. So, therefore, we should have an attitude of peace and take action in peacemaking. We need an attitude that it just is an atti- a disposition of the heart that says, I want to live in peace. I want to live in harmony. And so whenever I feel or experience conflict, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to let it fester. I'm not going to let it grow. I'm not going to grow in bitterness. I'm not going to you know, break off relationships. My disposition, my fundamental attitude is to pursue peace and harmony with others. That should be the believer's fundamental disposition. Uh, in Colossians 3.15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the word rule there means to act as a judge or an arbiter, an umpire, we should say. And so it's, you know, if, if, uh, uh, if we're in conflict with one another and we say, all right, peace of Christ, what should we do? The peace of Christ is always going to say, pursue peace. <laughs> right? Because that's the way that umpire rules. He rules according to what's right, according to the standards that have been established, the, the rules of the game, if you will. And so the peace of Christ uh, is the one is what tells us we should pursue peace with one another and have that fundamental disposition. And then the action of peacemaking, oh, there it is. I mentioned uh, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So as those who have been reconciled to God, adopted into his family, formerly we were enemies, formerly we were hostile to God, and now we're part of his family, we are to work in the family business of peacemaking. That is the business that God is in. Or put another way, when we pursue peace, we demonstrate that we are sons of our Heavenly Father, not our former father, the devil, who was a liar, a murderer, a thief. So peacemaking should be an essential part of our life. Because conflict will be, so peacemaking should be an essential part of our life. All right, we have like two... Three minutes, um, just kind of setting context, kind of big picture, but any particular thoughts or questions at this point? Okay, let me pray.